Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about uh, corrupt government officials. At least that's where our story begins. Specifically of a man who is extremely afraid of corrupt government officials. And he's not alone. Because, according to a survey we're going to look at in a minute, the number one fear of Americans is corrupt government officials. I thought that was very interesting. So I want to ask you to think about this for a second. What is your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? Is it the fear of failure? Anybody ever been afraid of failure? Any hands? Okay. How about the fear of inadequacy? Anybody ever had that fear? Yeah. The fear of uncertainty? Yeah. Oh, here's one. The fear of rejection. Yeah. The fear, here's the big one of the, of the day, the fear of missing out. This is why you have to log in to your social media all the time because you don't want to miss out. The fear of missing out. The fear of change. That's the one. The fear of losing control. Uh-oh. The fear of being judged. The fear of something bad happening. The fear of getting hurt. That was a top 10 list. I looked up a few different lists of what are the greatest fears in America. Washington Post had a few. Public speaking. Heights. Bugs and spiders. Brittany, I think yours would be frogs. And then snakes tops the list in a lot of areas. A fear of snakes. But that Chapman University survey about America's top 10 fears, I thought was very interesting. Number one, 73% are afraid or very afraid of corrupt government officials. Number two, what do you think number two is? Second greatest fear. Pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Number three, pollution of drinking water. Number four, not having enough money for the future. Number five, people I love becoming seriously ill. Six, people I love dying. Seven, air pollution. Eight, extinction of plant and animal species. Nine, global warming and climate change. It's even the fears in America have a polarized look. And number 10, high medical bills. Fear can cripple you. I've read some interesting things about fear that when you're trying to be creative, the absolute worst thing that can happen is fear. So in a brainstorming process, if somebody is afraid of their idea not measuring up, of being singled out, sometimes they don't share what may be the best creative idea possible. So this morning, we're going to look at this idea of fear. Uh, I remember when I was 12 years old, uh, it was one of those type uh, Pathfinder Youth Sabbaths where I think we were coming or we were going on a camporee, an event. And so we, that's right, amen. So we, 
uh, had all the, uh, the fuddy-duddies. They were dressed in their suits. While us kids, we were in real, real people clothing. So I ran into the church, and I was in my, if you remember these days, No Fear t-shirt. Anybody remember No Fear stuff? Okay, I was just obsessed with that stuff. And so one of the deacons says to me, hey, tell me about your shirt. I said, yeah, no fear. And he says, what does that mean? I said, I'm not afraid of anything or anyone. He said, how about God? I'm not afraid of God. He said, you should be afraid of God. You should fear God. That was his exact words. You should fear God. I thought, this deacon is the worst person. Why would he say that? And then somehow, though, I never forgot it. And for years, I was like, what is this guy talking about? Why would I fear God? I mean, we're in a church. You don't fear people you are supposed to like. And so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Because there may be different types of fear we're talking about. 1 Kings chapter 19. This is a really, really neat story. So here's the groundwork setting up the story. God's people have been convinced that all the nations around them have better ideas of governance, better ideas of living. And who wants to worship something you can't see when you can worship things you can see? When you can worship things that you can invite your friends over and tell them, look what I worship. And so finally, in the, in the course of that, God realizes this is a problem where eventually they will destroy themselves. So he withholds the rain. And you have these years of drought in Israel. And Elijah is the one who warns about it. This is why this is happening. We've become idolaters. And the king is mad and the king wants to kill Elijah. That's what you do with good prophets. You try and kill him. Or you leave their books on the shelf and you don't read them. It just depends what you do with a good prophet. So, basically, Elijah, in this moment, finally says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get on Carmel. We're going to see if your God or my God is more powerful. And my God is the one that is your God. You've just forgotten about that. And so they had this unbelievable event. We all remember that Bible story, pouring water on the sacrifice, taunting their gods. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's golfing. Maybe he's sleeping. Your God is not listening, but watch what happens with my God. Pour the water on there. Let's prove a point. And fire comes down, and the God of Israel is back. And Elijah runs down this mountain, leading the chariot of King Ahab back to the palace in this torrential rainstorm. No windshield wipers. And sometimes when we have a high point in life, we need to know that for some reason, it is followed by going into what feels like the depths of hell. And for Elijah, he has just been the hero of all heroes, leading the king back, everyone sensing and feeling like God is God again. And then that's where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 19. You can imagine the king running in the house. And Ahab told Jezebel 
all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. These were Jezebel's prophets, her staff, her people. And, and as any good uh, uh, story would take you, you start to realize, wow, wait a second, deep within the government, there's some corruption going on. And Jezebel is not excited to hear this news that King Ahab tells her. And so verse 2 says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, talking about the dead prophets, by tomorrow about this time. Now, you have just taunted the most powerful sources on the planet. Let's just put this in our terms. You've been on every news channel in the whole world, all the other religions of the earth, all the corporations bragging about their product, everybody saying this is the way, and you come along and say, those are not the way. In fact, they're silly. You're goofy. This is the way. And fire comes down from heaven, and everyone says, oh, wow, you're right. Everyone else is wrong, and we haven't had rain in years. You've prayed, and now the, the rains are coming. Would you feel a little bit like, I kind of got some power on my side? Maybe just a little bit. So that's Elijah in this moment. His prayers have been answered. His prayers have been heard. No one else's prayers have been heard in years or answered. And so the queen, who's been up to no good for a number of years, she sends a threat to him. And in the midst of all that we just know just happened in the story, he's terrified. He is full of fear, and he runs. And that's where our story goes. It says, verse 3, when he saw that, he arose, ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree. He prayed that he might die. I had a friend send me an email this week pleading with me to ask the Lord to lay him to sleep. He doesn't want to live. He can't find healing from his sickness, and he just wants to die. My heart just broke for him. And yet in this moment, Elijah is pleading with God, just let me die. I know we just showed the whole world that you're God, I know you answered my prayer, but that woman in the palace wants to kill me, so I'd rather die. He said, it is enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Verse five, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. This angel graciously feeds him. He goes back to sleep. The angel wakes him up again eat some more. This is a nice angel. But then we read in verse 8, so he arose and ate and drank and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the same mountain that we read all in and around the story of Moses, who also went 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Moses and Elijah are the two ones that come to comfort Jesus in the last moments of his life. And I think there's something there in this idea 
of being completely dependent on God in a time period when they're not even eating food or drinking, which is supernatural sustenance. And verse 9 says, And there he went into a cave. He spent the night in that place. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. So he knows who he's talking to, but he is telling about all the things that he has done. I've torn down your, they've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. In this very moment, Elijah is terrified. But he's not terrified of God. He's just asking God, you need to kill me. I'm terrified of that woman and those people, and look what I've done. I've done a lot of good stuff. Verse 11. God responds to this idea. So there's this idea of fear in the Bible that I remember when that deacon told me, you need to fear God. I was so confused. And here, let's add to our confusion. Go, keep your finger there. Let's go to Revelation 14. We'll come back to our story. Revelation 14. Verse 7. This is a verse that Seventh-day Adventists often read all the time. I have a good friend. He's got it on his license plate. Revelation 14, 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God. So in the context of this, it's talking about here are the messages that will go to all the world in the last moments of time. Three angels representing them. Here's the first one. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, what in the world? Fear God. Why would you fear anyone? Go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. This is Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived. We just heard from John, who's been given this message, fear God. The very first step of the last message that goes to all the world is, you need to fear God. I hope you're as confused as I was when I heard that. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, smartest man who ever lived says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. All right, what is this saying? What is this saying? Proverbs, go with me to Proverbs. One book to the left in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 9. Because this, at this moment in our story, Elijah doesn't really seem to fear God almost in any sense. But he's afraid of the queen. So Solomon tells us, fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. Last message is to go to all the world. Fear God. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. What is this fear we're talking about? 
says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this fear of the Lord is a very unique type of fear. Go over to Proverbs 8, and we start to figure out what this is. 8 and verse 13. The Bible is one of these amazing books that interprets itself. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is, what is the fear of the Lord? Hate evil. Hate evil. But it goes on. Hate evil. Hate pride. Hate arrogance. And the evil way. And the perverse mouth. I hate. So this this message of of God saying, hey, or, or Solomon and John and others, fear God, Solomon translates it for us. The calling to fear God is to hate evil. And how do you determine evil? The only way you determine that is the law. You won't know if something is leading you off a cliff unless you have a light or a map to show you where you're going. And we're told that the law is a lamp. It's a light for our path. So I think it's very fitting that Elijah, in this moment, is in a dark cave. We, we read about Elijah. He's a pretty good guy. He seems to have done a lot of good things, but there's something missing in his life that he doesn't understand. And so go with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verse 1, says this, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he formed you, O Israel. Fear not. Okay, so here's a totally different side of the coin. Fear God, and then there's these verses, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine. Don't be afraid. You are mine. But fear God. Okay, so we've got re- to reconcile this. John chapter 4. Go with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 gives us a little more clue on this idea We read some verses about fearing God, then we read some things about don't don't be afraid. John chapter 4, verse 18. I think I wrote that down wrong. Let's see here. Yep, I wrote down the wrong verse. I'll come back to that one. All right, we'll come back to that. Go back to me with uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. We have this idea of not being afraid in Scripture. Why does it seem like there's this this rub between God calling us to fear God but not be afraid? What What is the solution here? 1 Kings chapter 19. All right, so Elijah's in this cave. And God realizes, I have to prove a point to you. I have to show you something that you just don't seem to understand. I did all those things for you on the mountaintop and you're afraid of that woman who's threatening you. You killed all her prophets. 
And there's some who literally believe he was personally involved in that. You, you killed them yourself. It was 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not, made perfect, has not been made perfect in love. Okay, so there's an equation here. Ask yourself today, are there things that you're afraid of? And we listed a whole bunch here in the beginning. What is it that may keep you up at night, that may wake you up at night? Is it, man, I don't know if I have enough money for the future. I don't know if that person's going to survive. How would I live without that person? What's going to happen in this country? Whatever the fears may be, there are things that grip us and somehow hold on to us. But the Bible tells us here in 1 John 4, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So how do you get that perfect love? And here's what God does with Elijah. 1 Kings 19. Elijah has told him, I'm alone. I've been faithful. They've forsaken you. <coughs> and God says this. Go out. Stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. That's a pretty powerful windstorm. If you've ever seen a storm, you have a little fear in a storm of, man, this could get ugly. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. <coughs> after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So I think God does everything to say, hey, if you want to be afraid, I can scare you. I can do things that can terrify you. But I'm not in that. So it was, when Elijah heard it, <clears throat> Excuse me. When Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, This is the second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord. He repeats himself. Come on, man. We had this conversation. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. <clears throat> because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, as if he doesn't hear him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you're going to anoint this guy king. You're going to anoint this guy king over that place. And he just goes through these different things, and he gives him some assurance. Hey, and whoever escapes that guy, he'll kill. Whoever escapes this guy, he'll kill. And Oh, and by the way, in verse 18, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, FYI, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, if you want to be afraid, I can do stuff that's quite scary. I can tear mountains in half. I can send fire and do stuff. You've seen this. 
Yet that is not what I'm about. I'm in the, I'm in the silence. I'm when you turn the noise down in life, that's where I'm at. Where you know I can take control of a situation. Thank you. Appreciate that. And the question for us is, do we believe God still can do that today? Can he take control of a situation? Because I'm afraid by some of our texting with each other, we don't believe that. And some of our conversations with each other, it's almost like we're fascinated by the weapons of Goliath. We're fascinated by did you hear about that windstorm that tore that mountain in half? All the things that Elijah doesn't seem to be really impressed by, that God was almost proving a point, you shouldn't be impressed by these things. We sometimes get obsessed with these things. And whether we will admit it or not to each other, a lot of times they're gripping us with fear. I'm afraid of what tomorrow will bring. And I think that the ingredients here are the reason Scripture calls us, in a sense, to fear God is not in the be afraid type. It's in the know that I can do things very powerfully, and you should respect that. I can do it in your life, and I can do it in the world. And that's why Solomon, John, and others say, fear God. Look to God and honor Him, because when you fear God, you hate evil. You hate arrogance, you hate pride, you hate selfishness. When you get into that relationship of fearing God, you start to see things for what they really are. And, then, and the most scary point is when you start to see things in a mirror for who you really are. And that's where you need the assurances where God says, let me perfect that love where you know that I love you with an everlasting love, that I laid down my life for you that I've put value on you, and you should value yourself accordingly. And then as we see that equation, we realize that, that, you know, I love how the Scripture continues to distill ideas as you go through it. In the beginning, it's, well, it's probably, hey, Adam and Eve, love each other. This is what we do, and hey, love me. We're going to have a great relationship. So it starts pretty simple. But then it gets to the Ten Commandments where it gets a lot more delineated because we're pretty nasty and we need a lot of instructions. And then it gets to Jesus again where they're like, well, which commandments? Because we've got thousands of commandments now that keep us, help us keep some commandments. And, and as Adventists, we've got some laws we've created that help us keep other laws, and we're a little guilty of the same thing. And the question is, what does Jesus do? He distills it. Love God and love your fellow man but then he distills it even more. But how can you say you love God whom you have not seen when you don't love people around you that you see every day? And I think in that equation, we have fear because we still have this misperception of God that I'm not really sure he likes me. Maybe I am afraid of God. And these stories that we read in the Old Testament, I think have just lessons for us to remind us that you can get in a pretty bad situation in life, lose your job, lose a, lose a friend, lose a business, lose an asset, whatever it may be, 
And yet God says, hey, I'm, I'm still here. You're gonna be okay. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, if you wanna turn there with me, we're in another of these crisis moments in scripture. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And verse 12. So they're pleading out to God. They're surrounded. And they say, oh, our God, will you not judge them? We have no power against this great multitude. This is what Elijah should have done in that moment. Lord, I don't have any power against the queen. Do something for me. And God again would have shown up. We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Let me say it for our modern term. We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. More than ever in my life, I think we need to say that prayer every single day. If you believe the writings of Scripture, there is a verse that we can echo, and that is this verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and verse 12, Lord, we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, who is lumping every unique contrarian belief system into one camp. And if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of them all. And you will not be with the majority in the days ahead. And I'm so grateful for the stories in the Bible that say, hey, the majority, I'm not really sure when they've been right. Like, I believe we should prize ourselves when we think differently than the majority. We should be alarmed when we agree with the majority. Obviously, if it's a matter of principle, hey, we can agree as much as possible. But we should be cautious. As we look through the stories of the Bible and you look at where are the majority and where are God's people, God's people are in the little bitty group I want to encourage you, don't fall into the peer pressure of today. Everybody's doing this. Everybody believes this. Why would you think differently? My, my encouragement to you would be, well, that seems like God's people through history. He, he sends his spirit as this silent voice, but honestly, it's screaming in my soul. It is the loudest thing I can hear in the world and I can't turn it off. If I silence it now, I may never hear it again. And so in this moment, God's people are completely surrounded. And they're praying. It said the little ones, wives, children, they stood before the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of these guys with a really difficult name to pronounce. And he says in verse, 10, in verse 15, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up against by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeroel but then the most fascinating thing, you will not need to fight in this battle. 
We can strategize. We can think about all these ways in which we can defeat the enemies around us. But at the end of the day, God is saying, get on your knees. And best case scenario, get on your knees with your friends and say, Lord, we are surrounded by a multitude. I want to talk to some of you who are leaders. You are surrounded by a multitude of pressure to do things a certain way. And God has given you influence into people's lives. You are a much better pastor to them than I will ever be. And you have the opportunity to live by example and principle. I don't think you have to preach to them, but your example goes a long ways. And like this example here, it's remembering every day, Lord, I need you to show up in my life today. There's a lot of reasons I could be persuaded and swayed and influenced and the temptations are large. But help me remember this is not my battle, but it's yours. And then that that awesome statement I love, do for me, Lord, what it is not in my power to do for myself. God will answer that prayer. And if we look to him and if we have that relationship with him, as this world around us may pressure us to do anything you can imagine, God has promised, hey, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. You don't have to be afraid of the world if you're in this relationship with me and you know what I can do. And then he says something powerful. That last line ends with this in in 2 Chronicles. Our eyes are on you. Lord, our eyes are on you. In this world today, you can see a lot of reasons to think the Lord has gone on vacation. But we should be reminded, Lord, our eyes are on you. And then the Lord does something fascinating. This was something I learned as I studied this. The Lord does something fascinating when we pray that prayer. And it is this. The enemies of God will destroy each other. I think there's a pattern through Scripture. That's the pattern in the book of Revelation. The merchants of the earth and the great religious and political systems eventually at the end, though they're working together, eventually they destroy each other. That's what happens in this battle with Jehoshaphat. If we will pray to the Lord, he will guide us and we have nothing to fear. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.